My name is Heidi, and I love stories. Sad stories, funny stories, and what just happened stories? Turns out the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school and a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. I'll be bringing my biases, boneheadedness, and a little faith that somehow it all works together for good. Despite the detours and tendency things have to get utterly screwed. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. This episode, we're going to meet one of the greatest and most important characters in all of biblical literature, Abram, whose name will eventually change, but I'm not going to spoil what his name changes to just yet. To get to Abram, we're going to have to backtrack just a little bit to the flood. You remember the flood, right? Well, Abram is a descendant of Shem, and there are seven generations between the two of them. You're going to hear a lot about seven generations between blank and blank in the Bible, so just be aware of that. Here's the family situation in Abram's family. Terah, his father, three kids, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran had a son named Lot and then promptly died. Abram and Nahor both got married. Nahor had kids and Abram did not. His wife Sarai, who he loved very, very much, was barren. That's going to be important later, so keep in mind that I told you that very, very early. Now, Terah intended on taking Abram and Lot, his grandson, and Sarai to the land of Canaan. But they didn't quite make it there. They ended up settling in a land they called Haran. Well, probably after the dead brother. Anywho, that's where they ended up. All of that stuff is pretty much just background so that you understand why what happens next is so bafflingly insane. The Lord actually speaks to Abram directly. He gives Abram an order that makes no bloody sense, and yet Abram follows it because he heard from God, and that's what you do. God tells him to leave his country, his father's house, everything he knows, and to go to the land that God will show him. Where is the land that God will show him? Abram doesn't know yet, but he does because God promises to bless Abram, to bless everyone who blesses Abram and to curse anyone who curses Abram. He also says one of the coolest and earliest promises in the Bible, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How that's going to happen is going to be far more epic and big deal than we can even begin to cover right now. What's important is that Abram hears this message to get up and go without any real sense of direction or plot and freaking does it. And he doesn't do it half-ass. He doesn't like pack up just a little camping trip amount, you know, day trip to the countryside. No, no, no. He moves his entire estate, which is a big deal because Abram is not broke. No, 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 no. I'm not saying Sarai is a gold digger, but I mean, she's definitely not a gold digger. She is his half sister though, and that's going to come up pretty soon. So they move their entire family, all of their slaves, all of their wealth, all of their flocks, and they bring their nephew Lot because Lot decides he'd like to go with them. And the place that they set out for? the exact place that Abram's father didn't quite make it to, the land of Canaan. When they get to Canaan, God reveals that, lo and behold, they have arrived at the place that he will give Abram. He promises him that Canaan will belong to Abram and his descendants. But of course, there are still people in the land, and God didn't command Abram to do anything about that. So he builds an altar to God as a big thank you for the promise that his descendants will get to have the land of Canaan, and then promptly moves away to Bethel because, hello, there was people there, and he couldn't just take it. Bethel was going fairly well for Abram and Sarai until a serious famine hit and they had to leave. So where did they go? Egypt. They went down to the land of Egypt because with a very few exceptions, Egypt and Canaan and Bethel and that whole region are not fed by the same water sources. The Nile pretty much takes care of water in Egypt. So if there's a famine or a drought, Egypt is usually not affected by things that are happening in Canaan. 
and Canaan's not affected generally by things that are happening in Egypt. Again, that's going to be important later. Basically, everything that happens in the first book of the Bible is important later. Basically, everything that happens at all in the Bible is important later. It's a very, very intricately woven story. So I'm going to try to call out the bits that are really, really relevant or that won't be obviously relevant. But just remember, they go to Egypt. Remember how I said that Sarai was Abram's half-sister, which at the time was a lot more normal than it is now? Don't marry your half-siblings, guys. That's No, 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 don't do that. But back then it was pretty common. And despite the fact that Sarai and Abram were both well into their octogenarian years, Sarai could still get it, and Abram was concerned that Pharaoh would want to marry his wife. Of course, Abram would not get to become a member of the household as well. He would get killed. So Abram told Sarai to lie, that they were brother and sister, not husband and wife. Now, yes, this was technically a half-truth, but it was a half-truth ignoring the important part of the other half, which is that they were also husband and wife. So, lo and behold, they go to Egypt, and Pharaoh does fall madly in love with Sarai. Abram is aware that he's got game and that his wife's got game. We stand a sexy patriarch and matriarch. Before Pharaoh can have sex with his new fiance Sarai, the entire household gets a weird plague. It's so weird, in fact, that Pharaoh figures out what's going on and brings in Abram is like, why did you try to set me up with your wife? You could have just told me that she was your wife. Why'd you say she's my sister and this is weird? Go, just leave. But he also sends Abram with quite a bit of money because he had been giving Sarai a ton of gifts who Sarai had been giving to her, quote, brother, who was actually her real, real life husband. And Pharaoh let them keep all that stuff. So amazingly, this lie worked out surprisingly well for Abram. And there's a reason that he's going to try it again in the future. However, that is in the future. In the present, they're back at Bethel. That's where they go after Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt. You know, for Abram trying to marry off his wife slash sister to Pharaoh because he's crazy. Well, more accurately, because he's doubtful. A lot of things go wrong when you're doubtful. Well, they get back to Bethel, and because Abram and Lot have both gotten richer and richer and richer during this little road trip, there's not really enough land to support them both. And their workers are fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, and it causes a lot of family drama, so Abram and Lot agree to separate. Abram's plan for the separation is pretty simple. He'll give Lot the choice, because Abram's a good guy. Now Lot, because he's a little jerk, decides to take the best possible land. He takes the entire Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar. Before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, that's coming up soon, but it is noted here in this chapter, so I'm going to mention it out loud. Abram ended up in Canaan. Believe it or not, Lot took the valley that he wanted, and Abram ended up in the exact place he was supposed to be. Despite this little detour into Bethel, and also the little detour into Egypt, and also the little detour back into Bethel. Once Abram arrives in Canaan, God reminds him that this is the place that he is going to end up, and that his offspring are going to outnumber the dust of the earth. That's an insanely high number, by the way. I have no idea how much dust there is, but it's a lot of dust. Where does Lot end up? Well, Lot ends up going all the way to the city of Sodom, which at this point still existed. So go Lot, I guess? After their little detour, Abram has ended up exactly where he's supposed to be, and Lot has ended up near Sodom. Now, at this point, there's been seven, eight, nine generations of people, and that is enough in a pre-birth control world, at least, to have multiple cities with multiple kings who rule over them. And these kings have enough resources to actually go to war against each other. And so four kings unite against five other kings, and guess what? They lose. And the kings that lose are kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as some other places. And the victors take 
all of the people in Sodom and nearby, including Lot. Lot is now a prisoner of war, and Abram hears about it. And when he does, he is not happy. In fact, Abram is so unhappy to hear that his nephew and his family have been captured by these kings that he takes all 318 men who were born in his household. Yes, that's 318, not 300,000. 318. There are college classes. Well, there are professors who teach more students than that. Most classes don't have over 300 people. But that's not that many people to go up against five kings. This does not in any way deter Abram and his 318 trained men. They end up pursuing their enemy all the way to north of Damascus and end up friggin' taking the day. They set free all of the prisoners and all of the spoils of war. At this point, spoils of war were just as valuable as prisoners of war, and in fact, often more so. So the fact that Abram got everyone and everything back is insane, especially with a force of less than 500 people. Like, this is the original, original, original 300. For some reason, the number 300 is so poetically poignant when it comes to armies and defeating them. But this 319, counting Abram, people ended up doing a great job at getting everything back. As one might imagine, the king of Sodom wants to meet with Abram, you know, because he got all of his stuff back, and so they meet in a place called the King's Valley. And the host of this event, who serves bread and wine, is Melchizedek, king of Salem. This is kind of cool and important because Melchizedek is not only king of Salem, which, by the way, means peace. He is also freaking priest of God Most High, which means that Abram, who is the blessed of God, is meeting with the king of peace, who is also priest of God. Abram also sees this deeply resonant event, and when Melchizedek blesses him with the basically same blessing that God had given Abram, Abram ends up giving him a tenth of everything. This is the very first tithe that we see in the Bible. This is the first person that gets the title king of peace. This is the first priest we see. Melchizedek is deeply resonant, and we're not going to hear from him again for quite some time, but it cannot be overstated how freaking cool it is that this poetic meeting happens in the King's Valley. The priest of the God Most High, who is the King of Peace, blesses Abram. And Abram, seeing how important this moment is, gives him a tenth of everything that he has. The King of Sodom, not to be outdone, tries to give Abram anything. And Abram says he wants nothing because he will not like anyone take credit for making him rich. God alone is going to make Abram rich or not, and Abram will not take money from Sodom, which is probably really good. He will only take things that already belonged to him or his family or things that were needed for the people that were with him. Basically, the food that they had already eaten, he would take credit for and not pay for, but he would not take any clothing, any supplies, any anything. Just enough that he didn't owe the king of Sodom, you know, for liberating him and all of his people. And so Abram goes home. Abram goes back home and hears from God again. And this time, God goes even farther than he's ever gone before. God promises that he is Abram's protector. And Abram appreciates the gesture, but is a little bit annoyed that God keeps promising these offspring things, but hasn't actually given him a child yet. In fact, Abram had so far given up on having a child that he had declared one of his servants his heir, which makes sense. That's what you would do. And Eliezer is a trusted servant. But Abram is certain he's not going to have kids for a few reasons. One, he's very old. Two, Sarai, his wife, is very old, like so far past menopause. And God says, yeah, so. That's not exactly how he phrases it, 
But God goes on to say that he is going to give Abram a son out of his own body. Like, as in, you are going to have a biological heir. He tells Abram to go outside and look up at the stars. Filling the darkness with order and light. And is like, yeah, see all those stars? Try to count them. And Abram's like, I can't do that. God's like, yeah, that's how it's going to be trying to count your offspring. And Abram's like, oh, dang. The fact is, Abram believed God and God counted that as righteousness. Pretty much when it comes down to faith versus works, as it turns out, faith is a work. We see that from the very beginning. It's, it's a pretty fantastic moment to be like, God says something absolutely insane. Abram believes it, and God then is like, great, you did the right thing. You believed me, you know, God. And that counts for a lot. Abram did still want some reassurance, though, so God tells him to bring a cow and a bird and another bird and cut them in half. He lays each half on the ground, and God himself passes between them. God passing between the carcasses himself means that he is the pledge upon which he is pledging. There is nothing higher than God that God can swear on. And when he makes this promise to Abram, he not only promises him offspring that will outnumber the stars in the sky and the land of Canaan, but he tells him that his offspring are going to have to suffer for 400 years in a land that isn't theirs before they get to come home. So the whole story's already pretty much plotted out by this point. And because Abram has been so faithful to God up to this point, God promises that this 400 years of suffering will not be happening in Abram's lifetime. He won't have to see it. Suffering happens to everybody. The best thing we can hope for is that the big suffering won't happen to us or in our lifetime. It's like the old curse. May you live in interesting times. So there you have it. Abram, the patriarch, has left his homeland, gone to Bethel, gone to Egypt, made some lying mistakes, gone back to Bethel, rescued his nephew Lot from the king of Sodom, who, you know, of course, Lot is still loyal to and ends up going back to Sodom. What a mood. And uh, also gets a promise from God now three times that he's going to have offspring that outnumber a very large number of things. This episode had a lot of content in it really fast. So if you have time, I recommend reading it because there's a lot of stories that I kind of have to skim through on this part. But Abram is so freaking important and the things that happen in the next few generations are going to set up the story for a very long time. So the next part of Genesis is going to take longer than the first part of Genesis. That being said, things are rolling pretty fast and we've got a very complicated patriarch who's way too old to have kids who's been promised he's going to have an heir a wife that's postmenopausal, and no way out of that situation what's going to happen stick around next time